Welcome to worship. It's good to be together. Glad to be in the house of the Lord to sing together. So I'm going to ask you to stand with us. Welcome to those who are joining us, connecting with us online. Worship with us. Sing from home. Worship Jesus with us. Let me give you a couple words from Psalm 40. Let these call you to worship him. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and faithfulness from the great congregation. So as we gather together, one of the things we do is we sing to the Lord, but we sing to one another. We encourage and teach one another through song. So don't hide the faithfulness of God, the steadfast love of God for yourself. Sing it to your brother and your sister. So let's lift our voices and praise the Lord Almighty. Love he be friendly. 
One of the key verses for me, one of my favorite passages in the Bible is John 1 because it lays out the foundation for me as I relate to God as my Father. And the, the gospel says that you and I are sinners. Now, the gospel is good news. So how is that good news, that you and I are sinners, that we've transgressed against the Lord, and we have been separated from God forever because of our sin? But in John God says that for our joy, so that our joy may be complete, he gave us these words. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and all because of the blood of Jesus. So as we come today and we sing, we enter his presence together. We come not based on our own merits, not based on what we've done or haven't done, but because of the blood of Jesus. So church, bring your heart to him today. Confess your sins before your father who is ready, who is faithful to forgive us all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we humble ourselves before him. So let's take some time to confess before him our need, our sin, and ask for his forgiveness, which he's ready to give. Lord, you say that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, we lie. And there is no need for us to hide because you have invited us because of your son. So we come. We come and we confess, we proclaim, all I have is Christ. He is everything to us. Thank you for the blood of Jesus. Amen. Church, let's stand together. We're going to learn a new song this morning. It's called All I Have is Christ. We're going to confess that truth together. Darren is going to sing the chorus for us one time, and then we'll follow and join him and sing it together. Hallelujah, all I have. sing that together.
Oh, these uh, wonderful many years. Uh, there's so many things to say, so many uh, memories, so many uh, sacred moments, uh, so many incredible people. That would be you. Uh, so many incredible answers to prayer, incredible experiences. Uh, so many things uh, to say in terms of thank you. And this is what I love about you, but today is not that day. I will do that next Sunday as we celebrate um, the conclusion of my ministry. And Hannibal, in his graciousness, has given me four minutes. <laughs> Actually, uh, a couple more. Uh, but when he, he told me, Rob, there's a lot of things going on. You don't know what's happening on Sunday and I, um, next Sunday, and I'm not going to tell you, but here's, here's what you have, and you can say what you want in, in these uh, a few minutes. I thought, you know, Hannibal's going to be a great senior pastor uh, because he knows what he wants, and he's got it figured out, and so here's, Rob, what you're doing, and keep it short. I loved it. And it's not really fair to say um, I've only got four minutes because this is week number four in my concluding series, this four-week concluding series. As I wrap up 27 years here at Wheaton Bible Church, and these four weeks have been special for us. They've been uh, special for me. I, I began by talking about I wish for you, and I'm talking about my deepest wishes, my four deepest wishes for you. I wish for you... confidence in the character of God. I wish for you joy in the mercy of God. I wish for you man a love for the word of God. I wish for you and this is what I'm going to talk about today. A warm hearted gospel centrality rooted in the Son of God. But before I begin my message today, I want to give you a mask update in terms of where we are as a church here at Wheaton Bible Church, and then I want to pray. So we have a group of people that are on um, what's going on all around us all the time, and we're continuing to monitor uh, what is happening and looking at things and we discuss it and we discuss it and there's teams that discuss it every single day here at Wheaton Bible Church. There's two basic uh, things that inform our decision among others, two primary things I should say. One is uh, what's going on with the state of Illinois. And as you know, a couple of weeks ago, our, our governor mandated uh, wearing masks when you are inside. But what you may not know is within his executive orders, there has always been this religious liberty clause where places of worship are able to do as they see best. So what that means is from the perspective of the state of Illinois, we have flexibility. The second thing, primary thing we watch is what's going on with the incidences of COVID around us. And we're basically where we were in May. On the one hand, uh, COVID is increasing because of the variant and things like that. But on the other hand, critical care units are still flat. 
uh, still um, flat. And so because of the flexibility the state allows us and because of what's happening with COVID, I, I want you to know that we are going to continue to be mask optional. And therefore, if you want to wear masks, we encourage that. And many of you should and need to wear masks. And those of you uh, that don't want to wear masks, that's fine. We will have mask-only seating as well as uh, mask optional or, or non-mask seating. And we will continue, that's not the final word, we will continue to monitor that uh, going forward. Now would you bow with me and let's pray as we prepare to look into God's word. Father, we are amazed at all you have given us in Jesus Christ. We are amazed at the wonder of your Son, his beauty, his glory, his transcendence, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And today we come to you, Father, having confessed sin. And we ask that you would give us a spirit of confession, that confession is always on our lips. And we pray, God, for better hearts, hearts that are humble, hearts that are quick to confess. We pray that we would love you more, we would hate sin more, we would be more merciful as you have been so merciful to us. We pray as Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3 that out of your glorious riches you would strengthen us with power in our inner being so that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith. And that Jesus would be our center, Jesus would be our focus. Father, we want to pray for our brothers and sisters today who are hurting, and uh, whether it's physical, whether it's financial, whether there's family issues, and we pray, God, that you would bless. And that you would intervene and you would bring healing and hope. We pray, God, uh, that this... Uh, COVID virus and its different forms and mutations would dissipate, would go away. We pray that you would give our leaders wisdom and discernment as they watch this and as they lead us in our country. We pray for our president and his cabinet and our, our leaders at the national and state and local levels bless them. We pray again for the country of Afghanistan and pray that you would protect believers and you would use this moment to somehow build your church. We pray for the many ministries that are uh, in Afghanistan and uh, have a focus on Afghanistan and pray God give them wisdom. Protect and guide. And most of all, we thank you for your word that is living and active. That it is the inerrant voice of God and we ask that you would bless us as we look at it today. Amen. Now, I wish for you warm-hearted gospel centrality, and the reason I say warm-hearted is because I want your Christian experience not to merely be a matter of your head. Oh, I believe, but also a matter of your heart. Oh, I know. I have tasted and seen. 
I want your Christian experience to not just be merely a duty, but a delight that flows from the inside out. Warm-hearted. That you, each and every day of your life, would jump into the arms of your loving father, fall into the arms of your loving father, as a child does an adoring parent in utter dependence. warm-heartedness. And so today what I want to do is I want to uh, do three things with this wish I have for you that you would live a gospel-centered life. I want to explain it because it's not obvious when I say, uh, uh, talk about gospel centrality. Then I want to prove it biblically. So I'm going to explain it first, take a little time, then we'll get to some passages, and then I want to apply it. Now we're going to look at several different passages today rather than our normal practice of looking at just one. So out of respect for God's word, would you stand with me as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and uh, beginning in verse 1 where Paul explains for us here just exactly what the gospel is. So Paul begins, now brothers and sisters... I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received. Now notice, you received as a non-Christian, and on which you take your stand now as a Christian. Verse 3, for what I received I passed on to you is of first importance. And here's what the gospel is. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And you may be seated. Uh, so Paul, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is a summary statement of the main message of the Bible from the Old Testament. Notice twice the Old Testament scriptures are mentioned here, all the way through the New Testament. The basic message of the Bible that Jesus Christ died on the cross in our place for our sins. He was raised from the dead, and by faith in him we find forgiveness. Now, the word gospel is literally good news. So the gospel is this joyful historical report, and Paul is rooting the gospel in history, if we would continue reading here in chapter 15. It's this joyful, glorious report of the greatest act of mercy in human history, Christ dying for our sins. But today, when I talk about gospel centrality, I am not talking about the role of the gospel in salvation. I am not talking about how a non-Christian comes to Christ. That's not my focus. That's important and it's a huge deal in the Bible. Instead today, I am talking about the role of the gospel in spiritual development in the life of the Christian. So when I'm talking about gospel centrality, I'm speaking to you uh, as believers in Jesus Christ. And the reason for this is I have become convinced along with a lot of other people that there are thousands and thousands of believers in our churches that have a hole in the gospel. 
And by that, and they don't even know it. And by that, I mean they understand salvation in the past. They understand our, our future in heaven. But they don't understand, uh, they don't even uh, think about the uh, ongoing experience of the radical transforming power of the gospel. I mean, the resurrected Jesus Christ in our lives in the present. So, for example, we fail uh, uh, to apply to our lives the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, when we're struggling with anger toward our spouse or when you're struggling with anger uh, towards one of your kids or dealing with the brokenness in your extended family. Uh, we fail to think about the present ongoing implications of the gospel. Uh, uh, when we face sexual temptation that so easily trips us up, or the materialism uh, that tends to, to choke us, the anxiety that kidnaps our joy. So what do we tend to do even as Christians? We go to Amazon and look for self-help books. Uh, 20 ways to stifle your anger, 125 ways to a better life. And we, and we look for self-help instead of looking to Christ because we think that the spiritual life is a function of what I uh, am doing rather than what Jesus Christ has done, is doing, and will do. Friends, hear me in this. It is unbiblical to think that the gospel is what saves you and then you mature as a Christian by trying harder. Gospel centrality talks about the opposite, is just the opposite. It's the affirmation that the gospel isn't merely the starting line of the Christian experience, it's the whole race. It's not merely the ABCs of the Christian life, it's the A to Z uh, of the Christian life. So when I talk about warm-hearted gospel centrality, I want you to understand it's not your performance as a believer, but Jesus' performance that is the key to transformation. So the best way I can explain gospel centrality is it's a pivot. Where you take your eyes off yourself, knowing you're not equal to all that God has in store for you, and you pivot and you fix your eyes, as Hebrews says, on your bleeding, dying Savior. I mean, he laid aside heaven for me, you tell yourself. He humbled himself for me and became a man. He was mocked, he was rejected, he was tortured, he was beaten, he was crucified, that horrible death. Uh, for me, you're telling yourself, you're fixing your eyes on your bleeding and dying Savior. And to the extent you press that into your heart, you know what it does? It fills your empty tank. And it makes you whole. because you are living in light of the mercy of your Savior. And you become a person that extends mercy. 
And I, I want to say to you, this is gospel centrality, this notion of taking my eyes off myself and looking to Jesus as the, as the key to life has been a transforming reality in my life over the last uh, couple of decades. But it's a pivot. And we usually don't make that pivot. And I want to plead with you today uh, to make that pivot. Let me illustrate it for you. The pivot is illustrated in the story of the two sisters in Luke chapter 10. I mean Martha and Mary. And we're going to pick it up near the end of the story. And look what Jesus says. Martha, Martha, Jesus answered, you are worried and upset about many things. But few things are needed. Actually, as a matter of fact, only one. And Martha, your sister Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, you may know this story. The story is that Jesus comes to these sisters' home. He's going to have dinner with them. And so we are told a couple of verses before this that Martha is distracted by all the preparations. And I want to say to you, this comes alive when you understand that Martha is a metaphor for the American church. Martha is a metaphor for you. Martha is a metaphor for me. Hustling but hollow. Believing in Jesus but functionally ignoring Jesus. Mary is an illustration of the pivot because we're told in the story she's sitting at the feet of Jesus, soaking in Jesus' word. Now, that, I'm not suggesting that's what, how you and I live our lives 24-7, but there's an orientation. And Martha isn't lazy, or Mary isn't lazy while Martha is doing all the work. That's not Jesus' point. Jesus is talking about our heart. Jesus is talking about our focus. Jesus is affirming Martha because she's centered on his word. Now think about it. Martha has slowed down for a few moments. She's listening to Jesus. She's amazed at his love. She's made this pivot, and she will live the rest of the day out of the fullness of that pivot as she continues to think about Jesus. So when I say for you, I wish for you a warm-hearted gospel centrality rooted in the Son of God, I'm saying I wish for you a life like Mary's. where the word of God and the wonder of a savior that loves you so much is changing your heart. I want you, I want you to continually make this pivot. All right, now normally I will start with the passage and then uh, explain it, but today I want to explain the concept first and now demonstrate it in a couple of passages. I've chosen two early on, I had three or four, but I've boiled it down to two, and I want to begin with one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, where Paul says that we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. And by the way, that happens to come from the Lord. 
who is the Spirit. Now, what I want you to understand is here Paul is speaking to Christians. Paul is talking about spiritual transformation. He uses the word transformation. So this is a verse about how you grow, how you change, how you become a better husband, a better wife, a better parent, a better friend, a better employer, a better employee. And notice Paul doesn't say it's a matter of you sucking it up and trying harder. Now please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Obedience is at the center of our spiritual lives. But what Paul is talking about here is what is underneath our obedience, if you will, the motive for our obedience. And he says it's not about you doing this and that. It's about you taking your eyes off yourself and looking to Jesus, contemplating the Lord's glory. And as I said last week from the Beginning of the Old Testament through the end of the New Testament, the Lord's glory is both the might and the mercy of God. Exodus 34, I am the Lord, Lord, Yahweh. Uh, uh, compassion, it's the word mercy, gracious God. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. You are thinking, Paul says, you are contemplating Jesus' mercy to you. So you think about him being mocked. You think about his miracles. You think about his sacrifice. And what Paul is telling you in this verse, the key to your spiritual life, the key to transformation is contemplation on the grace and the compassion, the gentleness and the kindness of your Savior. And that is the greatest pivot in life. And so what I want to say is, you know, at the end of the day, you don't need so much 10 steps to a better marriage as you need to see yourself as a husband and wife or wife that is spiritually bankrupt but who has been completely and totally forgiven and loved and who will uh, always uh, live forever under the uh, love of a uh, Savior that loved you so much he gave his life for you, that he laid it all down for you. And that changes you. This is the warm-heartedness from the inside out. And so how dare you talk harshly how dare you be so unkind how dare you be so impatient with the people around you because Jesus is showing you right now this moment nothing but eternal patience and kindness and grace and forgiveness so I want to tell you the point of 2 Corinthians 3.18 isn't that you carry this list in your head of all the things you've got to do to please God. Rather, you carry a list in your head of all the things Jesus has done for you, a list of who he is, his attributes, his, his wonder. And that forms your Christian experience. Why in the world have we missed this? Why do we put a weight on our shoulders that we cannot carry? Let's go on to the second passage. There's two verses. This is the first. 
For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Now the grace of God is synonymous with Jesus, with the gospel, with the glory of the Lord. Paul just talked about in 2 Corinthians. But now, so we have the, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Um, and, and so we're, we're thinking about how non-Christians come to Christ. But look at what Paul goes to in the very next verse. This grace teaches us as believers to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright. There's our obedience and godly lives in the present age. So how do we learn to, to say no to our pride, to our bitterness, to our lust, to our tendency to tether our identity to our status and our stuff? How do we not just live self-controlled, upright, and godly life, uh, but want to? And Paul says, notice the word teaches, that it's Jesus, it's the gospel that teaches us how to do this. And so when you put verse 11 and verse 12 together here, what you discover is that it's the gospel again. That is the secret to you turning away from ungodliness and embracing godliness because it's Jesus. It's the wonder of all that he has done, his death, his mercy, his grace, his compassion that melts your heart. And I want to say, how in the world do we miss this? And why are we so uptight and critical so morose, so hard. How will he who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, not also with him freely give us all things? It's the gospel and the role of the gospel in the life of the believer. When I was young. I mean, I was little. My parents had a really bad marriage. Ultimately, they got divorced. It all had to do with my father's alcoholism. My dad was drunk all the time. And dinner time was especially rough. So here I am, I'm five, six, seven, eight, nine, a few more years on either side. And how do you find stability in that moment? Well, the way I found stability is by looking at my mother. I mean, looking at her face. And if my mother was okay, then I was okay. And in our non-Christian home, my mother was always okay, brokenhearted to be sure, but solid and tenacious in seeing us three kids through this crisis. Do you see my point? Gospel centrality is looking beyond the mess and the stress. 
the pain and the strain. Knowing that you're a five-year-old, you can't live this life on your own. So you take your eyes off yourself and you look to Jesus who tells us his heart is gentle and lowly. You see his goodness, you see his greatness, you see his resurrected power. And because he is okay, you know in life's most difficult moments you'll be okay. And it's an issue of focus, it's an issue of center, it's this issue of pivot. And I wish that for you. I wish you would be alive in the splendor and the glory of Jesus, that it would calm you into joy. It would empower you into taking risks. It would enable you to overcome because you know if Jesus has a refrigerator in heaven, your picture is on it, right? I mean, let's just say Jesus has a refrigerator in heaven. Well, guess whose picture is on it? Yours, and it's right in the middle. You know, the Old Testament tells us our name is written on God's hand, the palm of his hand. And every place he goes, oh, there's Sue. There's Bill. Jesus isn't going to forget about you. He's not going to ignore you. He's not going to uh, move on. And we live in light of that wonder, and it fills us with joy, and we have so much fun in life. Because in Jesus, you know what? We're invincible. In spite of the stuff. So now let me apply this. And uh, let me uh, take some time to do this. But what I want to do is help you know if you're living a gospel-centered life or how you can grow to live an increasingly gospel-centered life. So what I want to do is give you four markers of what gospel centrality looks like. But these are, hear me in this, internal markers in terms of what's going on in your heart. Not external markers. I'm not talking about behaviors. I'm talking about your mind and your heart and your soul and what's happening on the inside. This is why the proverb tells us, above all else, above all else, guard your heart. Because everything you do flows from it. And I want to speak to you about your heart. Because that's the biggest battle in your life. So the first thing I, I, I want you to understand or the first thing gospel centrality looks like is that we understand Jesus is the source of our life. Jesus is the source of your life. In other words, you believe he created you. He chose you. He adopted you because he redeemed you. He has forgiven you. He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He owns you. He has gifted you with spiritual gifts. He has anointed you. You have a divine calling on your life that enables you to live a life that nobody else will ever live. And Jesus is the, the source of your life, the source of your righteousness.
He's your electricity. As a matter of fact, to use a biblical metaphor from John chapter 15, um, Jesus is your vine and you are his branch. And, and I've said this before, but have you thought about what that means, that metaphor means? That means just as a branch will, or just as a vine will never withhold anything from its branch, Jesus will never withhold anything from you. He is the source of your life. I love the way Peter puts it. This is 2 Peter. His divine power, not just power, but divine power, has given us everything we need for a godly life. Through Now notice the pivot. Here's the pivot. Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And glory and goodness are synonyms. Do you know that Jesus is the source of your life? that he will not withhold anything, anything from you? He is the vine, you are the branch. Uh, do you get that? Does it matter to you? It's one of the markers on the uh, road to uh, a life of gospel centrality. I mean warm-hearted gospel centrality. Second, a second marker. Jesus is a unifying motive of your life. Jesus is the reason for the words you choose, for the patience you extend, for your refusal to harbor grudges, for the way you befriend the needy, for the life of radical generosity you live. I mean, generosity with your time, your talents, and, and your treasure for the, uh, the kingdom of God. Jesus is the motive, the reason behind all of this. He's the activating power. Uh, now, acceptance is important to all of us. All of us want to be accepted. As a matter of fact, apart from acceptance, uh, we have no identity. Uh, uh, Acceptance, the need for acceptance is part of the human experience. It's part of how uh, God wired us. But you know in your heart of hearts uh, that nothing compares to the acceptance you have found in Jesus Christ. And you know what that does for you? It stabilizes you. It settles you. It gives you assurance and security. It gives you peace. Because you know that nothing is more important in life than knowing Jesus. And your life reflects that. And the people around you see that in you. I love the way Paul puts it. May this be true in our lives. I want to know, I want to know. It's the language of experience. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. That's evidence that he's talking about experience. Uh, I want to see it in my difficult days and my good days. And I, I want to know uh, 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 participating in his sufferings. I want to be okay. Because I know I serve a suffering Messiah. 
And I want to actually become like him in his death. In other words, I want to live a life of denying myself and putting this to death and that to death so that I can and please Jesus. And so we don't, uh, let me say it this way. I wish for you that you would live according to what is real, not what you feel. Jesus. And in the difficult moments and the temptations when you're about to blow uh, your cool, lose your cool, blow your stack, when you are harboring something on the inside, uh, man, you say, okay, I'm going to live according to what's real, and Jesus is real, not what I feel. And you know what you've done? You've pivoted. You just pivoted. And Paul then concludes... And so somehow I would attain to the resurrection uh, from the dead. And you know Christ and you serve Christ and you love him. Let me go on. I'm going to slow down here. Glorifying Jesus is your life goal. Now, we all have goals, and I believe God wired us so uh, that we have goals, and goals are a very good thing, and most of us have several goals. I've had a goal for a couple years uh, to retire, and now that it's about here, I'm like, ah. what did I get myself into? But gospel centrality means that no goal in your life is more important than you throwing the spotlight on Jesus. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. As a matter of fact, do you know that everything in the Old Testament is about Jesus? That everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus? That the Old Testament isn't a series of instructions sprinkled with stories, but it is one story about one hero, and it continually throws the spotlight on Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about every single word in the Old Testament. But for example, do you understand that Jesus is a true and better Adam? who restores what the first Adam lost in the Garden of Eden. Do you understand that Jesus is the true and better Isaac, whose heavenly father not only raised the knife, but brought it down hard on Jesus? I mean, when you see the Old Testament, when you think about the Old Testament, do you understand that Jesus is the true and better Joseph? who doesn't merely sit at the right hand of Pharaoh, but sits at the right hand of God, who not merely rescues people from famine, but from the penalty, the power, and ultimately the presence of sin. That Jesus is the true and better Joshua who leads his people to the promised land. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. That Jesus is the ultimate temple, the meeting place between God and man, making it unassailable for us as believers in Christ. That Jesus is the true and better sacrificial system, the true and better priesthood. That Jesus is the true and better Queen Esther. Who doesn't merely risk losing her palace when she says, if I perish, I perish but who lays aside his heavenly home, saying, I will perish. 
I will die for their sins. That Jesus is the true and better Job who doesn't distance himself from his annoying friends, but lays down his life for not just his friends, but his enemies. And I could go on and on. Now, of course, we can't turn every single situation in the Old Testament to Jesus. That would be a, a gross misrepresentation of the Old Testament. But Jesus tells us twice in the Gospels, the Old Testament points to me, the law and the prophets, mm-hmm. And there you will see me. And he says uh, to the religious leaders, why in the world didn't you see me in the Old Testament? As a matter of fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that a rock, the rock that Moses hit in order to try to spring water for the nation of Israel while they're in the wilderness, Paul tells us that rock is Christ. A rock. I mean, take the famous story of David and Goliath. Is the story of David and Goliath uh, really about you and I facing the giants in our life? Anxiety, problem here, problem there, difficulty in our our family or our life. Is the story of David really about, and Goliath, really about you facing your giants and then you digging deep and coming up with the faith and courage uh, that David had? And I want to say to you, no, because that is not good news, it's bad news. But what if instead of inserting yourself into that story as David, you insert yourself into the story of, as one of the Israeli soldiers who just happens to be cowering in fear, who can't cope with the situation, who is frozen, eyes downward, can't even look up. And you see David not as you, but as pointing to Jesus, who acting as your representative head slays the giant of sin and imputes his righteousness to you while you have done absolutely nothing. Do you see how David points to the mercy of Jesus? And it's this mercy as you and I dwell on it that enables us to live uh, gospel-centered lives and to push back against whatever the world, the flesh, and the devil throws at us. And here's my point in mentioning this. Just as everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus, You want everything in your life to point to him. Frankly, how you interpret the Bible, does it point to Jesus, uh, will determine in large measure how you interpret your life. And so if the Bible throws the spotlight on Jesus, man, gospel centrality is throwing the spotlight on him as well. And we live not for our glory. We live for the glory of our resurrected Savior. And finally, and I'm done, Jesus is your hope. Every day, every single day, the luggage of condemnation arrives on your doorstep.
And Satan whispers, you're miserable. Look what you just did. You're hopeless. And I want to say to you, <clears throat> what the pivot tells us is no matter how dark our skies, no matter how big the hail, uh, because we've put all our eggs in the basket of the wonder of a Savior that loves us so much, he gave everything. You are going to be a, a person characterized by hope, by peace, by joy. And people are going to love the way you laugh. Because you know Jesus has got your back and Jesus has got your present and Jesus has got your future. So what does Revelation tell us? There's a day coming, there's a day coming, there is a day coming when he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things have passed away. And it's a new day called eternity. So friends, because I love you, I want to say to you, and I, in some ways I believe this is the most important of my four messages, I wish for you this warm-hearted, you're living out of your heart, focus on the wonder of a Savior that will never let you go. Because you see Jesus not merely as useful, but as beautiful. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray for these wonderful people watching online, here with us today, and pray that you would fill their lives with the mercy of our Savior. The wonder of your love as our Father, the mercy that's been activated through Jesus Christ and the power and the presence of the Spirit in our lives. I want to pray, God, that you would warm our hearts. I want to pray that you would allow us to see the sun. I pray for an ongoing pivot in each and every one of our lives. Amen. Amen, church, as we prepare before we take communion together, would you stand with us? Let's, let's do what we just heard and behold the Lamb of God. Let's look to Jesus as we sing together. the cross. 
You may be seated. 
And now we come to this table, this table of the king that we've just been singing about. And we know, um, as we've been in the church, that this is a picture of the work of Jesus Christ. So the bread pictures the broken body of Jesus, the blood, the shed blood, or the uh, cup of the shed blood of Jesus. And so when we uh, take these elements, we're uh, affirming the reality that uh, not only did Jesus live, die, and was raised from the dead, but he did all that for me. But I also want to say that there's another picture going on, and maybe picture isn't the exact right word, but there is here a picture of the presence of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is present right now. He's present all the time. But uh, these elements remind us that, that he is here. As a matter of fact, I believe Jesus uh, in the, the, that last supper gave us the bread and the cup uh, as something tangible to remind us that he is real, that something we can taste and something we can feel. He is present in your life. And so I want to invite you to take a moment now to thank you, Jesus for his death in your place. And if there's something in your life you need to confess, uh, confess it. I'm not talking about something in somebody else's life, but your life. <laughs> and then uh, thank God that he is present. He is always present in your life. And let's do this right now. So let's take these elements, and on the top we have the cracker or the bread, and go ahead and wrestle that out. And as we do this, and as we take this, Jesus said, this is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And of course, uh, uh, near the end, not at the end, but near the end of the Passover meal, after the bread, Jesus instituted the, the Lord's Supper, gave us the, the, this communion, 
And taking the cup, he said, this cup is the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So Father, we praise you for the work of Christ and the presence of Christ. And we ask that you would fill us with a love for Christ because we have just experienced how much Jesus loves us. Amen. Would you stand with me? Later today, in the next 24 hours, he's going to say something that upsets you. She's going to do something that disappoints you. It could be an adult, it could be a, a child. 
And you're going to say, oh man, and something's going to rise up inside of you, doggone it, and um, you're going to be right on the edge. Here's the pivot. The pivot is saying, I have done that over and over before Jesus Christ. And he has completely and totally forgiven me, totally accepts me, and has shown nothing but mercy to me, and that's what I'm going to do in this moment. And all God's people said, amen. May God bless you. May his face shine upon you. And may he give you the grace to see the wonder of your forgiveness. Have a great day.